Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Donna Stair. And I'm her husband, Alan. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. Today we are in the crosshairs. What's our episode, Donna? We are ready to clean up radio everywhere. The air date was April 12th, 1981, written by Max Tash and Hugh Wilson. Story editor Lisa Levin, executive story consultants Dan Gunselman and Steve Marshall, directed by Linda Day. A preacher with watchdog group Clean Up Radio Broadcasting, or CURB, wants WKRP to stop playing specific songs due to the lyrics. Mr. Carlson thinks the station should cooperate with CURB. The rest of the gang says that the songs are classics and shouldn't be censored by anyone. Big news, fellow babies, we talked to Max Tash. Max worked on every single WKRP episode. He was production associate in the first season, associate producer in seasons two and three, then coordinating producer in the fourth season. Max has an incredible depth of knowledge regarding the show. We've been in contact with Max for more than a year now, but we've only ever contacted him through email. If we'd run into a stumper, we'd drop him a question or two. In the Daydreams episode, it was Max who gave us that incredible detail about Buzz Sapien acting as an extra and Herb saying gracias boozy. For this episode, we decided to see if Max would talk to us in an interview. This is his very first writing credit ever. We told him we needed his insight and more than just what we could get from email. He agreed and we spent a fun and informative 90 minutes Zooming with Max. Our first question was, do you remember how you got the idea? And oh, yes, he does. He was very specific. It was a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday morning. I'll tell you why. It was because the the Tuesday night, there was the election of 1980. 1980. So the election, this is in November. And I remember watching Ted Koppel and Nightline, and I remember watching... uh, Falwell being interviewed and how influential he was in the results of Reagan getting elected. And, and he just had this sort of like this, just very satisfying smile on his face. And that's just interesting. The Reverend was a bit too smug for Max's liking. Seeing Falwell's interview sparked an idea with Max. Went to bed and I, and I thought, I wonder what would happen if, this happened on KRP, and they attacked Carlson, the most religious man on the station. Just, you know, that they didn't really know him and 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 it went beyond just that kind of personal thing, but became this mission that they were on with. So I came in in the morning. I was really excited. Oh, I want to tell Hugh. I want to tell Hugh. I got an idea for a story. And um, 
So I said, I said, did you see the nightline last night? He said, yeah. He said, did you see the interview with Falwell? He said, yeah, boy, he's got, he's got an attitude or something like that. I said, yeah, I know. I just, I wonder if he, if he like gets the KRP because we knew that they were doing these uh, hit lists and all this stuff. I said, what if, what if he, you know, attacks the station and, and in the process also is attacking a very religious man who believes a lot of things, you know, and, I didn't have to go very far. And he said, yeah, I, you know, I mean, he saw the conflict immediately. Max said giving an idea for a story to Hugh wasn't so much about telling the story. It was more about making sure Hugh saw the structure of the story. Hugh could see, uh, you know, really what Hugh was seeing was what his twist was going to be on it. You know, it almost didn't matter what mine was. He knew that he could take it at some point and really make it something of his own, you know, so that was... Perfect. Max pitched his idea to Hugh in early November of 1980. Production would be nearly five months away. When the show was scheduled for actual production, it was uh, the date on the draft here is March 24th. So I pitched it in November. My first draft came to MTM uh, on Jan- in January of 81. And then March of uh, late March of eighty one, it went into production. Max says what hit the stage in March was very different than what he'd written as the first draft, but it didn't surprise him a bit. When cleanup radio everywhere hit the stage, Hugh had written the script. He really had. I mean, he he rewrote every word, and he had done that before. So I, it wasn't a shock to me. This is the third year of the show, and I was just starting out. Casey Petrowski, Bill Dial, and Tom Chihawk have all reported how sweeping Hugh's rewrites would usually be. They've also mentioned the genius of Hugh Wilson when it came to crafting comedy. Max Tash had a ringside seat. And when you read what he had written, it was just like, oh my God, I, there was no way I could do that. But <laughs> but the germ of the idea came from my my brain, you know, which was very satisfying to know that I was able to stimulate his brain. This was the final episode of the third season, airing in the spring of 1981. As we've mentioned, this past winter and spring have been tough for the show. It's been struggling on Saturday nights, usually finishing in the 50s for the week. We asked Max if this episode came about because there was concern this might be it. There won't be a fourth season, so we'd better get to the big questions now. No, no, um, no. This was just a, a, another episode in season three, and you know there were there were definitely issues in almost every show, um, maybe quite not so political and topical. Uh, well, I take that back. I mean, the the Who concert uh, was definitely yes. that. So yeah, I mean, it didn't seem out of the ordinary. Um, it was just something that they really wanted to do. When we asked about the shared writing credit, Max told us it was common at the time for the person who supplied the idea to be given sole writer credit, even though you had done the rewrite. Why was this one different? Max explains. The script was completely rewritten by Hugh. And he saw, I think he saw the value of the lessons that were coming out from it. And he did something that he, I don't, he rarely did. In fact, this may be the only time he did it on KRP, where he asked to share credit. He asked me, 
You know, he said, do you mind if I put my name on this with you? We'll have more from episode writer Max Tash throughout the podcast. And make sure to be watching for our full interview with Max coming next week. Now, let's get into the episode. We open up in Art's office. Art's sitting at his desk. He's relaxed and leaning back in his chair playing a handheld electronic game. When Jennifer enters, saying there's someone here to see him. Art tells her, not today. Oh, he's been here quite a while. Well, no one should have to wait. Send him away. He's written you two letters. I don't read my mail. Jennifer tells Art he seems rather nice. She would like for him to meet the gentleman. Mr. Carlson finally gives in, saying he'll see him. We're pretty sure Art's playing a Mattel Electronics handheld baseball game. Finding a reliable history of early handheld electronic games was difficult. Most of what's out there are YouTube videos of guys showing off the ones that they still own. And some of those videos are a little embarrassing. (laughs) Mattel started making electronic games in 1976. Their earliest games were Mattel Auto Race in 76 and Mattel Electronic Football in 1977. Mattel Electronic Baseball was introduced in 78. All of these handhelds use LED technology, which means tiny red lights. The ball, the players, the car, whatever it was you were supposed to move around in one of these games, what you were moving was a tiny red LED light. As rudimentary as they were, Americans were seemingly desperate for handheld electronic entertainment. These early, incredibly simple games were selling to the tune of a half million units a day in the late 1970s. Jennifer opens the door to Mr. Carlson's office and invites the man who's been waiting in the lobby in. She introduces Mr. Carlson to Dr. Halliers. The two shake hands, and Dr. Halliers thanks Mr. Carlson for seeing him. I know how busy you must be. Oh, gosh, yeah, it just never stops here. Dr. Halliers is being played by Richard Paul. Richard Paul had an interesting career both as an actor and as a clinical psychologist. Paul was working on his master's in psychology while at the same time he was out performing Shakespeare in the Park and lending his voice talents to two Firesign Theater albums. Paul has 60 credits on his IMDb profile. He started in 1974 doing voices on the TV series Emergency. He made the rounds of both sitcoms and dramas with recurring characters on both Murder, She Wrote and Full House. Paul seems to have been genetically engineered to play Jerry Falwell. It's basically what he's doing here. He also played Falwell by name in both the 1996 big screen motion picture People vs. Larry Flint and in the made-for-TV story of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker called Fall from Grace. Richard Paul died as a result of cancer in 1998 at the age of 58. A note about the doctor's character name. You will hear it said as both Hallier, singular, and Halliers, plural, throughout the episode. We asked Max if he remembered what the doctor's name was supposed to be. It's funny. Well, in the draft I had, which is a first draft, it's Salyers, S-A-L-Y-E-R-S. Max says he thinks they changed the S to an H to make it easier to say. And he said there's no story behind the name. Holliers and Carlson both have a seat. 
Dr. Holliers says he hopes Mr. Carlson has had a chance to read his letters. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, medical things, medical stuff. Uh, oh, <laughs> no. No, I'm a doctor of divinity, a preacher. <laughs> Mr. Carlson tries his best to cover for his mistake. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, oh, the medical people were in here yesterday. So Holliers explains he's head of the Tri-Faith Broadcasting Advisory Committee in Cincinnati. He says they formed a media task force called CURB. It stands for Clean Up Radio Broadcasting. <laughs> this definitely raised a Max question. What is with the name? The listed title of this episode on the Shout Factory DVD and on IMDb is Clean Up Radio Everywhere, which is a good name. It means they have the initials C-U-R-E. But here in the show, Dr. Bob says he's with Curb, or Clean Up Radio Broadcasting. Also, a good name. We asked Max, was this a mistake? No, no mistake. It was just a, a change in one of the uh, rewrites um, that Hugh, I mean, Hugh was really uh, always the, the head of every rewrite. And, and um, so on, on the original, I mean, I have the script this is the first one that has the cleanup radio everywhere on it so this is oh this wow. is that um and it's cleanup radio everywhere i i think i think it always was that like when it got changed from originally it's just that originally it was called Bambi. Oh, that was quite an answer. But it wasn't really an explanation. Max realized he hadn't answered the question later the same day. He sent us a follow-up email saying, I don't know if I ever really answered the cure versus curb question. Max said in his recollection, it came down to this first interaction in Carlson's office. The decision was made that curb sounded more ominous than cure. Curb also contained the word broadcasting, which would bring it right home to art. Everywhere was more generic, so less threatening. Since cure had been used in the early drafts of the script, and since shows have to report episode titles to TV Guide more than two weeks in advance, the title Clean Up Radio Everywhere is what got reported to TV Guide. When they wound up using Curb in the final, Cure had already been turned in as the title. As we've mentioned before, the only place you ever saw a WKRP episode title was in TV Guide, so the decision was made to just leave it. Dr. Halliers tells Carlson WKRP is the very first station they're contacting in the Cincinnati area. Mr. Carlson is looking uncomfortable and maybe a bit ill. He says that's great and leans back in his chair. Suddenly, the electronic baseball game makes a noise. <laughs> Dr. Halliers looks around the office, then asks Mr. Carlson. What's that? My heart, I think. We found a music replacement. This is quite possibly the weirdest one in the whole series. There at the end of the scene when Art's game goes off, what you're hearing on the Shout Factory disc is not what was there originally when the show was aired in April of 1981. Checking in with the Big D, Dale Kovar, we discovered in the original airing of this episode, Art's Game played five or six notes of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. <laughs> the snippet on the Shout Factory disc is replaced with a generic electronic sound. 
What happened? This seemed like a Max question. One of Max's primary production duties throughout the show was to secure rights for the music being used. We wondered if he had to secure rights for Take Me Out to the Ball Game. I don't remember having to do any rights to the computer sound or for the computer sound. And I don't remember being having it be Take Me Out to the Ball Game specifically. I, so I, I, I can... I, I should claim complete ignorance because I really don't remember. So why would they change the sound in the syndication and DVD versions? Max said he didn't have any involvement with creating the syndication packages, but he did venture a guess as to why the cut may have been changed. Maybe originally when it aired, uh, they may have just said you can have it because it was a videotape show and it was very short and maybe once it hits syndication then they weren't going to have any of that there's also the possibility that the sound is trademarked by mattel that it might have been another reason that they changed it so take me out to the ball game is a tin pan alley song written by jack norworth and albert von tilzer in 1908 what a name that's a heck of a name the original 1908 music and lyrics went into the public domain after 75 years so they were available as public domain in 1983 and alternate version of the song written by Norworth in 1927 was still under copyright as of 1981. The clip made it to the original airing, but it was definitely changed for the 1980s and 90s syndication packages. Shout Factory seems to have used the syndication package version of the sound. Now, either the licensing is really that tight on Take Me Out to the Ball Game, or the Shout Factory didn't know there'd been a replacement. As Art's catching his breath, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back from the break still in Art's office. Dr. Halliers is explaining to Art what Curb is wanting to do. Mr. Carlson, what we at Curb would like to do is to work with your station by helping you in any way that we can in bringing wholesome, life-affirming programming to what are, in fact, the public airwaves. Art rolls his chair back over behind his desk. He tells Dr. Halliers, they're just a little bitty station. Halliers says Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap have a strong following. Mr. Carlson tells Dr. Halliers he seems to know quite a bit about the station. I sure do. We've asked our membership... 3,000 Christians in Cincinnati alone to monitor your broadcasts. Dr. Halliers pulls a paper out from his suit jacket pocket and unfolding it, hands it to Mr. Carlson. Here's a list of uh, records that have played on your station recently. Now, all of them contain sexually suggestive, if not obscene, lyrics. Mr. Carlson looks at Dr. Halliers, his mouth hanging open in disbelief. Really? Dr. Halliers points at the paper Mr. Carlson is holding, telling him the offensive words are typed off to the side. Some church secretary had way too much fun typing those offensive <laughs> words off to the side. Probably had to stop several yeah, times and fan, fan herself. herself. We were really curious about what Dr. Bob had on his list of dirty word songs. The FCC quite famously restricts foul language, what's called patently offensive, from going out over the airwaves. Patently offensive is traditional swear words. Anything that would make an old ant gasp generally isn't allowed on the radio. George Carlin's seven dirty words were pretty accurate. 
So what did Dr. Bob have on his list? Well, we knew of a couple spots where words have slipped through in lyrics over the years, but were there really enough for a list? We decided to see what we could find in the way of dirty words in pop music from the 70s and 80s. What we found was a bit jaw-dropping. A lot of patently offensive words have been allowed onto U.S. airwaves over the years. When pointed out, they aren't even that hidden in the lyrics. We did a quick edit of some of the more recognizable offenders. This is your warning. The edit is a minute 40 seconds. Having them all together in one place makes it pretty raunchy. Shocking. These tracks have all either been hit singles or were played on the radio as an album cut. All were released between 1970 and 1983. You've probably heard the songs. You've most likely even heard the offensive words. They just didn't register. Ready? We're pretty sure none of these are on Dr. Hollier's Walkman. That's why we ticked the explicit box on this episode. Those are just a few. There are dozens more. For a list of what we just played, check our show notes. Yes, they edited out Mix Line from the Some Girls single, and Steve Miller did a recut for the Jet Airliner single version where he said funky kicks going down in the city. He was told that was the only way he'd ever get that song on the radio. Well, the re-edit was fine for Top 40, but album rock stations wanted the extended intro and the full guitar solo. Both were cut down for the single version. AOR stations would play the album cut, and that's when the unedited version of Jet Airliner would hit the airwaves. These songs without edits were played thousands of times over the air throughout the 70s and 80s. Sure, there were a few Dr. Bobs running around mad about it, but for the most part, no one complained and no one boycotted. If you didn't like what you were hearing, you just turned to another station. 
my. Uh, I, 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 I didn't know. Uh, oh, good. Of course, you see, I don't listen to the station number too often. Dr. Halliers is a little surprised. Really? Mr. Carlson tells him he doesn't care for rock and roll. Dr. Halliers says he doesn't either. <laughs> Halliers asks Carlson to call him Bob. Okay, Bob. And I'm, I'm Arthur. Dr. Bob puts a hand on Mr. Carlson's desk and leans down while pointing at the paper. He asks Mr. Carlson what he thinks about this. I think this is bad. Yeah, frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. I, I, I should talk to my employees about this. Halliers goes for the throat. He asks Art if he can get his DJs to stop playing these records. You mean to stop them altogether? All Hollyer says yes. I suppose I should. Praise the Lord. What? I said praise the Lord. Hollyer reaches out to shake hands with Art. I think I found myself another Christian here today. Mr. Carlson tells him yes, he is a Christian. I try to be. <laughs> of course, sometimes I don't do quite as well as I should, but fortunately, blessed are those who are weak in spirit. Mr. Carlson smiles at Dr. Hollyer's. Dr. Halliers responds, pointing at Mr. Carlson. And blessed are those who are righteous in his name. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, righteous <laughs> and weak. <laughs> you sure, <laughs> sure came to the right guy. <laughs> this is three episodes in a row where we've gone biblical. Amen. Art's mention of being weak in spirit is from a New Testament Bible verse called a Beatitude. It's one of Christ's teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes also translated as poor in spirit, these folks are guaranteed the kingdom of heaven. You can find this one in the New Testament. Check out the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3. The verse Dr. Bob quoted is a bit more elusive. We couldn't find a biblical passage that said, blessed are those who are righteous in his name. We found another beatitude, the fourth, in Matthew 5, verse 10, which says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted on account of righteousness. Other places we're told we can hunger and thirst for righteousness and even be led into paths of righteousness. To be righteous according to divine law means you are completely without guilt or sin. Unless we missed something, Dr. Bob's claim that being righteous will earn blessings doesn't seem to be supported in the Bible. Really? We transition into the bullpen. Johnny's drinking from his coffee mug as he sits at the DJ's desk. He's looking at that same piece of paper Art was reading in his office. We hear a commercial for Red Wigglers playing over the bullpen monitor. When you're looking for the live bait fish love most, look for Red Wigglers. And you mentioned that Red Wigglers commercial is being voiced by Venus. Yeah, Venus is doing the voiceover on that one. So Johnny passes the paper on over to Venus. I've seen it. Venus passes it on to Travis. Art asks Andy to shut off the wall monitor. Johnny is tapping his fingers on the desk. So, Mr. Carlson, uh, what do you got in mind? Well, I'm just going to ask you fellas not to play those songs anymore. Andy walks back over to the group saying some of those songs are the biggest hits of the year. And some of them are rock and roll classics. Mr. Carlson tells Andy he knows, but some of those lyrics are dirty. No offense, AC, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, this eye has beheld this, and I don't see anything there that's beautiful. Here we are subtly handed the central argument at the heart of censorship. Just because you don't like something... Does that give you the right to make the decision for everyone? Andy's at the coffee machine filling up a cup. He tells Art half the time he can't even hear the lyrics. 
Art tells them the curb monitors figured out the lyrics. They sure did. Boy, I can see him now, huddled there in the corner of the church late at night, just playing every record slower and slower. And suddenly, there's a naughty word! <laughs> and I could picture that little group huddled around in the corner. <gasps> yes, Art looks at Johnny. This means that you're not going to cooperate with me on this, huh? No, it means I'm not going to cooperate with Curb on this. Mr. Carlson asks Venus what he thinks. Venus tells Mr. Carlson he's concerned about the lyrics sometimes. Johnny's not happy with Venus. Come on, man. Well, man, you've seen the list. I mean, they don't even have the choice ones. They're a lot more worse than that. Andy's been listening to the conversation. He asks if he can say something. He tells them all his life he's run into people like this at work. He admits his aunt and uncle were a lot like Dr. Bob's people. And I'm here to tell you... I have never seen a group of people who were so sure they were right about everything and so sure everybody else was wrong. Carlson tells him Dr. Bob Halliers isn't like that. And he tells Art that may be... But that man did not come in here and say, we don't like this music, so we're not going to listen to your station anymore. What he said was, we don't like this music. We don't want other people to listen to it anymore. Good point. And he tells Carlson he calls that censorship. I knew somebody was going to use that word. What else would you call it? Mr. Carlson argues this is a portion of the public expressing themselves. Are they supposed to just ignore it? Johnny points out they already censor themselves. Mr. Carlson says, well, they must not be doing a very good job because they're playing those records. I thought these people were going after TV. Why don't they go after TV and leave us alone? Probably because they want to practice on a couple of guppies before they go after the whale. And this might be a subtle comment about WKRP, the TV show. According to Hugh Wilson in America's Favorite Radio Station, just before production of this episode, WKRP, the TV show, wound up on a Jerry Falwell moral majority list of offensive television programs. And he asks Art what he wants to do about the list. Carlson tells him, not to play those songs anymore. He thanks them and begins to walk out of the bullpen. He thinks this is it, but Johnny stops him. Uh, what happens if uh, we play some other song that these people decide they don't like? Hurt scratches his head. He, he doesn't know. Well, Johnny says he knows. We'll get a new list. And after that, another one. And after that, another one. And after that, another Giving in to pressure is a slippery slope, and they all know it. You can see by Art's expression, he hears Johnny, but he doesn't respond. He leaves the bullpen. I knew somebody was going to use that word. There's a cut for time, and now it's a new day. We're back in Mr. Carlson's office. Mr. Carlson and Jennifer have just entered. Mr. Carlson tells Jennifer that some of the employees have stopped speaking to him. Now, normally, that'd be playing right into my hands. <laughs> For the past few days, he's perceived a sense of disapproval, if not outright loathing. Jennifer tells Mr. Carlson she's sorry. It's all my fault. I never should have let Dr. Bob Halliers in here. Carlson asks Jennifer. What was I supposed to do? Say no? Mr. Carlson admits he finds some of those records offensive himself. Jennifer tells Art she thinks there's a larger question here as she opens the latest letter from Curb. Mm. Art wants her to tell him what it says. Turns out it's a commendation. Curb has named Arthur Carlson their Broadcasting Executive of the Month. Really? Oh, and here's another list of records. 
Curb's top 40 hit list. I suppose that's a play on words. Because he knuckled under to pressure, Jennifer hands the new list to Carlson. He sighs as he takes it. In the bullpen, Herb is sitting at his desk while Venus talks to Bailey. Yeah, but what about all the sex on TV, huh? What sex? I mean, every night I go home and just sit there waiting on it. I'll ever see her car crashes. And as we check Herb sitting at his desk, it's It's time. time! Herb Darlick, fashion alert. Herb's jacket looks like a patchwork quilt of blue, gray, white, and tan. He's wearing a white dress shirt with a blue tie that has light blue diagonal stripes. Herb never stands, so we don't have a report on his pants. (laughs) But we're guessing white belt and white shoes. No vibe and threads for Venus this week, but we did want to mention his green ribbon. The yellow ribbons for the hostages had just ended in January of 1981. In February, a Philadelphia woman proposed using green ribbons as a way to remember missing black children in Atlanta. At the time of this episode, 20 Atlanta children had gone missing or been killed in the same Atlanta neighborhood in the past 19 months. Venus was wearing the ribbon to remember them. Andy has entered the bullpen. Venus tells Bailey he was visiting his sister, who has two kids, ages five and nine. They were sitting in front of the TV at eight o'clock at night, watching a TV show where the characters were arguing about abortion. Now, is that right? Hmm. We remember a TV show having that same discussion in November of 1979, only instead of at eight, it was at 9.30. What I recommend is an abortion. An abortion? That's right. Oh, well, Mom, Mom, I don't think we can do that. I, I mean, listen, if you'd had one, I wouldn't even be here right now. Now, an abortion is possible and legal. You think about that. Bailey tells him they talk about the same subject on the 6 o'clock news. Besides, I think kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Herb has to chime in. He's not buying this assessment of America's youth. No, they're not. When I was a kid, I didn't know anything. It's here we find out that Les is in the bullpen. I know you're all probably wondering what I think about this curve business. It's been driving us crazy, Les. Why, yes, speak up, Les. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman entire right wrist and thumb. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Les gets up from his desk and he walks out into the bullpen from his office because they would not have been able to hear him back in his office. In a situation like this, I always ask myself, what would my hero Edward R. Murrow think? (laughs) And I think that Ed would think that this was censorship. And yes, ERM was most definitely against censorship. Herb and Venus look as if they think less is finished, but then he continues. Then I think about what my other hero, General George Patton, would think. (laughs) And I think that George would think that radio and television ought to be cleaned up. But if he were alive today, he'd take two armored cavalry divisions into Hollywood and knock all those liberal pinheads into the Pacific. (laughs) Les stands for a bit, looking at them all. So as you can see, I'm a very confused man. (laughs) 
And when I get confused, I watch TV. <laughs> Television is never confusing. It's all so simple somehow. <laughs> that was a liberal pinhead. <laughs> So we've mentioned both Edward R. Murrow and General George S. Patton multiple times before on the show. Murrow was the CBS reporter who made his name with on-the-spot reports from war-torn London. The group he brought together to report on World War II from Europe is still considered one of the finest news crews ever assembled. General George S. Patton, also known as Old Blood and Guts, commanded the 7th U.S. Army in the Mediterranean Theater during World War II. He also commanded the 3rd U.S. Army in France and Germany following the Allied invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. Patton died in 1945 as the result of injuries sustained in a low-speed car crash. Don't know if this means anything, but Les's heroes seem to die young. Patton died at the age of 60. Murrow was only 57 when he died due to complications from lung cancer and a lifetime spent smoking. Mr. Carlson enters the bullpen. He walks over to Andy, handing him the latest curb list. He tells them all they were right. Andy looks over the list, then stands up. Must be some mistake here. There's songs on this list that we haven't even played yet. Andy tells Mr. Carlson this is censorship before the fact. They have to get off Dr. Bob's train. We cannot let him program this station. Andy offers to go talk with Dr. Bob Halliers. But Mr. Carlson tells him no. No, I'll go talk with him. Still the station manager. Knock those liberal pinheads in the river, Mr. Carlson. (laughs) Wrong hero, Les. We fade into a very nice office where we've never been before. There are diplomas on the wall. Oh, there's a Bible open on the lectern. Dr. Bob is sitting at a large wooden desk in a big, soft, leather-covered desk chair. The door to his office opens. A middle-aged woman leads Mr. Carlson into the office. We don't know if she's the one that typed the naughty words, but she might have been. Dr. Hollier stands and welcomes Art with a handshake and tells him to have a seat. Art tells Bob they got his new list. As long as they keep making records like that, we have to keep coming up with new lists. <laughs> Carlson gets right to the point. Uh, I, I have something I'd, I'd like to say. Uh, you know, as a private businessman... I feel a little foolish taking orders from a religious group. To me, it seems, well, un-American somehow. Dr. Hollier says he understands, then he goes on to explain. But I think this is really democracy in action. He asks Mr. Carlson if the people he represents have a right to speak out. Mr. Carlson tells him, well, yeah, sure. I don't think that, you know, one small group of people should have so much power that they can dictate what's on radio or television. Dr. Holliers tells Carlson a small group of people already dictate what's on the airwaves. Well, you and your program director decide what records to play. That's just two men. Holliers, just like Falwell, is slick, glib, and very self-assured. He's able to turn an argument around without anger or offense. He goes on to say a group of people he can count on his fingers decides what gets on television. And that's for the whole country. Is that right? Dr. Holliers has turned Art's words back on him. I agree with you. I don't think that a small group should decide for everybody. And that's what we're fighting here. He slaps his desk for emphasis. Art tells Dr. Hollyers he sees what he's saying, but it's really a very confusing question. It's really very simple, Arthur. Now, if somebody has the right to make a picture, let's say, about some unspeakable bloody horror, 
which they do make, and just to make money, then I should have the right to say, I don't like that kind of movie. And if they have the right to put that movie in my local theater, well, I should have the right to try and get it out of my local theater. Art's listening intently. He then asked Dr. Bob how he plans to do that. Dr. Hollier says they would use the one tool that seems to get any action. Economic boycott. Oh, well, what would you do to us if we played some of those songs on that list? Well, we'd have no choice but to go to your advertisers. Dr. Bob used the term boycott. A boycott is any organized, nonviolent, voluntary avoidance of a product or service. It's named after the first person to ever be boycotted, Irishman Captain Charles Boycott. During the Irish Land War of 1880, Boycott evicted 11 tenant farmers. He was subsequently shunned by the community. No one would trade with him. His servants refused to work for him, and he was ostracized. The boycott on boycott worked. These days, thanks to the Internet, boycotts are much easier to stage, and they tend to be more effective than ever. I remember my parents boycotted Pepsi because oh, yeah. they did not like something about Michael Jackson. I don't know yeah, what he when did. They, they paid him a ton of money to be the spokesperson, and a lot of people said they'd never drink Pepsi again because well, he was such a bad influence. Well, two of those were my parents. Ah. <laughs> but Arthur, why play any of those records? They're all obscene. Mr. Carlson reaches into his jacket pocket and pulls out a folded piece of paper. He hands the paper to Dr. Hollier's. I have one of my disc jockeys, uh, Dr. Johnny Fever. Gave me the lyrics to a song. He wants to know if you'd let him play that song on the air. Dr. Hollier's takes the paper and reads the lyrics out loud. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky Nothing to kill or die for And no religion too Imagine no possessions. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Hollier sits back in his chair. That sounds like communism to me. <laughs> sounds like communism. <laughs> if there's no heaven, no religion. And I assume no God. Art looks at the lyrics on the paper, then he taps it. There's not an obscene word in here. Not the way I see it. Carlson asks Hollyers if this song goes on the list. Hollyers motions towards the paper containing the lyrics. Arthur, this is typical of the kind of secular, liberal, humanist point of view that gluts our airwaves. Carlson takes the paper and makes his point. Yeah, but we're not talking obscenities here anymore, Bob. We're talking about ideas, political and philosophical ideas. First you censor a word, and then you censor the ideas. But the idea is man-centered. 
not God-centered. Dr. Holliers goes on to say, man is an animal. The Bible tells us to put our reliance in God, not in our fellow mortals. This song says, there's no heaven. Ah, no, it says just imagine there's no heaven. That's blasphemy. Holliers was, of course, reading the lyrics to Imagine by John Lennon. Imagine comes from Lennon's 1971 solo album of the same name. It was the biggest single of his solo career. It peaked at number three on the U.S. Hot 100. It is also listed at number three on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Using the Imagine lyrics to prove his point about the censorship of ideas is brilliant. It's the most memorable scene of the episode and one of the most memorable scenes in the entire series. No surprise, as Max told us, this was all Hugh. When to think of Imagine, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I thought about another another uh, song that Carlson was quoting in another conversation. So it wasn't even with the Reverend. Dr. Bob said those lyrics were blasphemy. Blasphemy is an insult that shows contempt, disrespect, or lack of reverence concerning a deity, a sacred object, or something considered inviolable. It comes from the Latin root blasphemare, which is the same place we get the word blame. Art puts the lyrics on the desk and he taps it, asking Hoyers if it's on the list or not. Hoyers says he has no choice but to say, on. That decision was made by one man. Carlson points his finger at Hoyers, making his point as he says this. But Arthur, if you could only see. Oh, Bob, I'm sorry, but so long. Carlson gets up and walks out of the office, leaving the lyrics on Dr. Bob's desk. Holliers picks up the lyrics and is looking at them as the scene fades. Dr. Holliers is a stand-in for Dr. Jerry Falwell and his moral majority. We've mentioned the name Jerry Falwell a couple of times already. If you aren't familiar with Jerry, Richard Paul bears a striking physical resemblance. Jerry Falwell was a Baptist minister based in the U.S., In 1976, following a series of rallies, Jerry decided we were all falling victim to moral decay. Jerry felt it was up to him to change this. Well, I'm glad somebody decided they needed to take that on and get us us fixed. By 1979, Falwell had formed an organization dubbed the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority claimed to be a Christian-based organization. They were mainly white and mostly Southern. They were dedicated to maintaining a Christian concept of moral law. At its height in the early 1980s, the Moral Majority claimed more than 4 million members. As Max mentioned, the Moral Majority played a role in getting Ronald Reagan elected in 1980. By the end of Reagan's second term, the perceived need for a morality watchdog had kind of faded. The Cash dried up, and the moral majority was dissolved in 1989. We transition to Mr. Carlson's office, where Bailey is sitting at Mr. Carlson's desk writing. Mr. Carlson is leaning over her, looking at her work. She's just erased something. And what do we replace it with? Bailey looks up at Mr. Carlson. He says to replace it with a heart association spot. Bailey tells him then they would be going directly from a lung association spot (laughs) into a heart association spot. Well, maybe we could separate them with a forest fire. (laughs) The door opens, Herb walks in, and it's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. This is a repeat. Well, actually a re-repeat, but a must-mention-again suit. 
Herb is wearing a shimmery three-piece suit of green with chalk lines running vertically from the collar to the cuffs and on the vest, too. He's wearing a white checked shirt and a maroon tie. Herb looks very frazzled and worried. Hey, guy. Crispy Treat Pizzeria just canceled everything. Hard-ass Herb, didn't he go down there and talk to them personally? For an hour and on my knees. And I gotta say, it's not the cleanest place in the world down there either. <laughs> Herb's dusting off his pant legs. And let's make a note there. We don't want to be eating at Crispy Treat Pizzeria. So Herb dusts off his pant legs as he tells Carlson he's really scared. I mean, we're losing everything. Hard-ass Herb, what reasons they gave for canceling? Well, Herb said they told him there were no reasons. But you know better than that. At the open of this scene, Art and Bailey were taking paid spots off the log and replacing them with unpaid PSAs. You might be wondering why they would replace a paid spot with an unpaid spot. Couldn't they just play more music? Up to a point, stations will try to maintain what are called stop sets. A stop set is a block of commercials or other announcements that come between the songs. There is no fixed formula for stop sets. Everybody's got a theory. Some programmers like several shorter stop sets, maybe five or six in an hour, none of them more than two minutes each. Others will tell you the best way to hold listeners is to only do two long stop sets an hour, make them like six or seven minutes each. However you do it, once listeners are used to the stop sets, you have to keep them in place. Listeners get into a listening rhythm with their favorite stations. Art and Bailey are trying to maintain stop set length even though they are losing advertisers like crazy. Jennifer comes into Art's office to say Harvey Green is here to see him. And did you check Jennifer's <laughs> yes. outfit? It almost has a colonial feel to it. Ruffles galore. Or maybe a pirate shirt. The puffy shirt, like Seinfeld. It's <laughs> kind of a puffy like shirt th- feel. This pirate trend that she's come up with, Jerry, this, this is going to be the new look for the 90s. You're going to be the first pirate. <laughs> well, I don't want to be a pirate. Herb tells Carlson, he can't see him. He's just going to cancel his business. Mr. Carlson asks Bailey to leave. On her way out, she runs into Mr. Green and says hello to him. How's the worm business? The same. Always the same. Well, good. (laughs) Bailey leaves the office. Mr. Green is smiling, looking after Bailey when Herb comes rushing up and grabs his hand, shaking it. How you doing, Harvey? How's everything down there at Red Wiggler? Can't talk now, let's just say everything's fine. Leave it that long. Well, if you don't let him talk, he can't cancel. Herb walks out of the office. He can't get out of there fast enough. Harvey Green is being played by Ralph Monza. Ralph first appeared on TV as a character named Gluck in 1954. For the next 46 years, Ralph would be pretty much on everything. He notched 160 performing credits with multiple appearances on several shows, including 18 episodes playing Bud on Newhart. Ralph's last network guest appearance was on Friends in the fall of 1999. Ralph has a unique claim to fame. He made a guest appearance on both the original Twilight Zone in 1959 and then on the new Twilight Zone in 1985. Ralph suffered a heart attack just three weeks before his death in 2000 while he was filming a Budweiser commercial. Harvey is left standing with his hand still out as he looks after Herb, who shuts the door behind him. Carlson walks over and greets Harvey, who tells him a minister came to see him. Dr. Bob Hallier, huh? Yeah, 
Yeah. How did you get in trouble with a fellow like that? Mr. Carlson tells Harvey it's a long story. He says you play songs that are bad for the kids. I know. I know. Of course, that's what they used to say about the music when when we were kids. <laughs> Remember the jitterbug? <laughs> Remember the jitterbug was, was going to turn us all into drug fiends? <laughs> Harvey laughs and pokes Mr. Carlson with his elbow. Harvey mentioned the jitterbug. Jitterbug was a general term for any swing dancing. And yes, the jitterbug was supposed to be the downfall of Western civilization. The Lindy Hop and the Charleston were popular jitterbug dances. The term originated at the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. The Savoy was one of the only non-segregated ballrooms in America in the early 20th century. When whites would come to the Savoy to dance the Lindy Hop, black patrons thought they did it too fast and jumpy. They said the white Lindy Hoppers looked like jittering bugs. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the term jitter is fairly modern and very American. The first use of the word jitter in print was in the 1929 Preston Sturgis play Strictly Dishonorable. The first recorded use of the term jitterbug was from the 1934 Cab Calloway song of the same name. If you'd like to be a jitterbug, first thing you must do is get a jug. Put whiskey, wine, and gin within and shake it all up. And then begin, grab a cup and start to toss. You are drinking jitter sauce. Don't you worry, you just mug and then you'll be a jitterbug. Hear this fat boy blowing his heart. Harvey goes over to sit on the couch. He tells Art, Dr. Halliers came by with a couple of other ministers. He said they represented thousands of people and... Every one of those people would tell other people not to buy my red wigglers. Harvey tells Carlson he's trying to sell his business. His sons don't want it. They don't think worms are interesting enough. They want to pursue careers in modern dance. <laughs> Both of them. How's that for luck? <laughs> Set for luck. <laughs> Art offers Harvey a cup of coffee. He tells him no thanks. Harvey looks at Mr. Carlson and apologizes. He says he can't survive a boycott on his product right now. He tells Mr. Carlson the way the economy is, he can't even get a loan. And a lot of religious people fish. Oh, my God, I know. Concerned, Harvey asks Mr. Carlson if he's lost a lot of business over this. No, I'm doing all right. Mr. Carlson looks at Harvey. I think you made a wise business decision. You know, people who listen to rock and roll, they don't they don't buy a lot of worms. Harvey nods his head in agreement. Harvey looks thoughtful for a moment. You know, Arthur, maybe it's God's way of of trying to tell us something. You told me. Told me once you didn't like the radio business too much. And I'm certainly getting tired of the worm business, so why don't we let Dr. What's his name? Dr. Bob go ahead and put us out of business. And the two of us can Moved to Florida and starved to death. <laughs> Harvey mentioned the bad economy. In 1981, wow, was it ever. The U.S. entered a period of recession at the start of 1980, and it lasted until early 83. It's considered the most severe recession to that point since World War II. Worldwide, inflation was up, interest rates were up, economic output was down. We caught a bit of a continuity error with this scene. Harvey Green is being played like he's an old friend of Arthur's. Art mentions people who listen to rock and roll don't buy worms as though Harvey 
was a holdover from the old format. They seem to have forgotten Red Wigglers was an account that came on after the format change. We first heard about the Cadillac of Worms in Episode 9, Mama's Review. How did our advertising clients react to the change in format? Uh, oh, they, they all uh, left. Yeah, but we got some new clients. For instance? Oh, for instance, the uh, Mighty Mellow Cigarette Rolling Paper account. And then there was, uh, what else? Uh, red, red Wigglers. Red Wigglers. What are Red Wigglers? Uh, well, Red Wigglers a uh, big concern, but Very big. What do they sell? Worms. Wonderful. I like their, uh, I like the jingle. Red Wigglers, the Cadillac of Worms. We're hooked. Carlson considers the offer to move to Florida and laughs. He asks Harvey if he can think about it. Harvey tells him, give it some thought. He says everybody's doing it. Harvey puts a hand on Art's shoulder and looks him in the eyes. Arthur, I'm sorry. I feel like a coward. And I am ashamed. Well, don't be. The door opens and Andy walks in. Harvey and Andy greet each other with a handshake. Harvey goes to the door and takes the knob in his hand. Goodbye, Mr. Travis. Arthur, forgive me. Harvey turns and closes the door behind him. Andy looks at the closed door, then turns to Mr. Carlson. Red Wigglers, too. Yeah. Mr. Carlson sits down at his desk and he picks up his electronic game. He begins to play. Andy begins to pace. The wheels in his head are turning. We're going to get every radio station in Cincinnati together and we're going to fight this guy. Now, we either hang together or we're going to hang separately. We're going to go to the press. We're going to go to our listeners, the people who really support us, not a bunch of religious nuts. Andy, they are not nuts. Andy bends down to eye level with Mr. Carlson. He asks if they built this business up so it could just get cut down just like that. Mr. Carlson is again playing his game. Is that what all that hard work was for? Art's game makes some noises. Andy asks Art what he's doing. Playing computer baseball. Andy asks him why. Because, Andy, recently this is one of the few joys I've had in life. (laughs) The door opens and Jennifer sticks her head and she asks Mr. Carlson if he'd want to see Dr. Bob Halliers. He's got his nerve in coming here. You tell him to go to hell. Andy. Now, that man is a man of God, and I'm not going to have you talking like this. Carlson has his hand on Andy's shoulder, trying to calm him down. He looks at Jennifer and tells her to send Holliers in. Dr. Bob comes into Carlson's office, thanking Jennifer. Holliers and Carlson greet each other using first names. Mr. Carlson introduces Dr. Holliers to Andy. Dr. Holliers sticks out his hand, but Andy doesn't take it. He just says, hi, barely making eye contact. Mr. Carlson tells Dr. Halliers Andy is the program director. Andy is keyed up. Yeah, that's right. I'm the program director. My job is to program the music I think our listeners would like to hear. If I'm wrong, our ratings go down and I get fired. It's called the free enterprise system and it works pretty well. Mr. Carlson nervously clears his throat. Well, some people don't like the records you program. They fight back. It's called a democracy and it works pretty well. It's called censorship. And you could call it a rose if you like, but it still stinks. Mr. Carlson puts his hand on Andy's arm. Andy, please. Holliers walks up to Carlson. Arthur, uh, I'm truly sorry that we ended up on opposite sides of this. Well, thank you, Bob. But you know, aside from stirring a whole lot of people up and making an old man feel like a coward, I'll be darned if I can figure out anything else that's been accomplished by all this. Dr. Holliers smiles. Well, a lot could be accomplished, Arthur. You'd come on over to God's side. I'm not sure that 
giving up my freedom of decision is God's side. And Hires tells Carlson that's a matter of opinion. Carlson agrees, and he says he doesn't want to argue the point any further. Clasping his hands behind his back, Mr. Carlson looks at Dr. Hollier's. But I would like to uh, express one other thought that occurs to me. Surely. Bob, watch out for those broadcasters that cave in to your pressure. Because principle's not going to mean a darn thing to them. All they're going to be doing is saving their swimming pools. Oh, they'll be the first ones to come and sit at your table. But I think the good ones are going to be the ones that are willing to take a loss and put up a fight. Well, then I'll, I'll have to learn to love my enemies, Arthur, like the good book says. I hope so. Because I don't think you're going to be able to trust your friends. And if we could quote Canadian WKRP blogger Roy Penny, boom, mic drop. Roy also nominated that line as line of the episode. Dr. Hollier's smile fades. He tells Mr. Carlson goodbye and walks out of the office. Art walks back over to his desk and has a seat. And he rests his arm on the back of Art's chair. I suppose in the meantime, you're going to lose money for a principal. Which brings us to... The line of the episode. Hey, Travis. When it comes to losing advertising clients, these bozos don't know who they're up against. (laughs) (laughs) He's been doing that for years. Art goes back to playing his electronic baseball game. Andy walks to the door of the office. He turns to Mr. Carlson and points at him. I'm going to fight him tooth and nail. I know you are. Carlson winks at Andy, and Andy opens the door, then leans toward Mr. Carlson and adds, If all else fails, I might even set less messman on him. <laughs> Andy walks out and shuts the door. Boy, that could signal the end of organized religion as we know it. <laughs> And the credits roll. With that, we not only wrap up our episode, but this is the wrap-up to Season 3. A huge thanks to Max Tesh for making this final episode of Season 3 so special. Now, we're going to take a week off between seasons, but we've got something huge for you while we're gone. It's our complete interview with Max Tash. What you just heard was just a small part of the more than 70 minutes that we talked with Max. Don't miss our full interview with Max Tash next week. Then, the following week, what's our episode, Donna? An Explosive Affair, Part 1. In the first of this two-part episode, WKRP receives a terrorist bomb threat. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes and find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRP cast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast. You'll get behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. (laughs) 
WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shot Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!